Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Ollie E. Brown, a prolific drummer, percussionist, and producer who during the 1970s, 80s, and 90s worked with dozens of top rock, pop, R&B, and funk artists. Those collaborations include the Rolling Stones, Billy Preston, Minnie Riperton, The Temptations, Michael Henderson, The Jacksons, Ray Parker Jr., Quincy Jones, and Renee and Angela, among others. He was also a member of the band Radio and partnered with bandmate Jerry Knight as Ollie and Jerry for the 1984 soundtrack hit Breakin' There's No Stopping Us. Ollie, thank you for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great. You, you're one of the few people that said the uh, title correct. There's no stopping us. You know, <laughs> so many people would say, ain't no stopping us. No, that's not it. I saw more records during that time. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I much prefer your track to that other one. So there you go. Hey, hey, it, I always tell people, it don't matter. I saw the check. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take away that away. <laughs> no stopping the check. <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> well, so how you been doing? How you doing this year of all crazy times and you holding up yeah. all right? Well, you know, like we was talking before, uh, Thank God that we have music because it has always and will always be so universal. Uh, thank right you for now. making time to do it. Much appreciate it. And uh, Absolutely. been a fan thank for 
you know, so many years, so many great records that I've enjoyed through the years. So I, I look forward to, to, to talking about some of that. And you mentioned uh, being from Detroit, and I kind of wanted to start there and find out, okay. you know, how did you first uh, gravitate towards music and why drums and percussion? Well, um, and I'm glad you said percussion because that was the base that led into my expansion of music industry and everything else I did. I was at uh, a school talent, talent show, believe it or not, in a sense, uh, at elementary level. And the first thing happened was it was the school band and it was this drummer. I think they were doing a little drummer boy for Christmas. And he was standing out front playing on the what we would call a snare drum. And everybody was just clapping. And I, was, and I looked at him and I was like, I can do that. It was one of those I can do that moments. And I don't know if it was because I liked all the attention it got, but I was like, I like it and I can do that kind of attitude. And it expanded from in school on down to church and getting into a band and being around people in music like uh, Motown. And so it, it was meant to be uh, music because what better town is it to be growing up in than Motown? And uh, on down to my career, and I will take it with you, well, we'll get to all that Motown background, how that happened, and the story, and meeting Barry Gordon. Just the whole, my whole life has been a blessing, including how I uh, met uh, Stevie in uh, in Detroit and, and was able to be his drummer. So just backing up a little bit, started off in school. I started taking drum lessons and started helping my teacher, Mr. Kirby, who is not with us, but... I always like to throw his name out there at uh, Angel Elementary School. I went to Northwestern High School. We called it the Big N.O. Been making some contact uh, with people from my school that reaches out that been following me. You know, it's just really good to hear people like you uh, say things. I, I, I can't tell you, Scott. I got another interview coming up that is locked into uh, your stuff uh, regarding my stuff with the Jacksons because I did um, uh, it's going to be called uh, it's, I think it's the 50th anniversary of the Triumph album mm -hmm. you know, I know you're familiar with the Triumph that was the last album that they did as the Jacksons that was really uh, big and they were able to take <clears throat> some of those songs even when they went out on tour with Michael. I think that's Michael the one that did. had the Heartbreak Hotel in it, right? Yep, see yep. there? Every time I bring up that album, you guys will bring up that song. <laughs> and I can't tell you, man, it has been so enjoyable to hear people like you with no prejudice, no agenda, compliment and say that song. It's 12, I think 10 to 12 songs. And that one comes up. So it's either from drummers or people that admire music all together, and they always ask. And I'm going to share how that whole album went down uh, in the um, uh, studio uh, when we did uh, the album tier. So to give you a little preview of, of what uh, on your show, since you brought up the song, that song 
All that uh, drumming that you hear it was all me. That was in the day, buddy, when everyone was in the studio looking at each other. Mm. You know, and I appreciate technology, but I'm telling you, I don't care what no one said. That element is and will always be an important element in making music if you can do it. You know, technology is great. You know, my son, he writes music. He's called Breezy, so you'll be hearing from him. But the guy that he works with is over in England. Mm-hmm. You know, and he works here, out of, out of, right here in my studio. So uh, I made this studio really for him. And so what happened is when I was doing the drum feel, and I want everyone to go and listen to that song, you're going to hear the horns play. Okay. That drum beat and that little feel, I was just messing around at the end of the record. That was back in the day where they would edit stuff and move it up. So at the end of the record, we were just playing that little shuffle beat, and Nathan uh, was on the bass on that particular song. Nathan Watson plays uh, with Stevie. Uh, uh, Tito was there that day. Uh, Michael was in the booth, because he the one started it. Michael was in the booth. Lyrics are not written yet. And let's see who else. Oh, Greg Filling Games was playing keyboards, and he arranged the song. And at the end, when the song was over, I had this drum set that had three tom-toms on it. And then it had another set. So I thought the rep was over, so we just jamming that beat. And I went, I guess I just went around. They edited the drum feel, put it in the middle of the song, used it for the lead-in to go into uh, the, the guitar solo. Jerry Hay did the horns, and he uh, started stacking it, so it became a lick. So they started playing on top of that. You understand that term? So you stack it in the building. Now, now it is a part of the record. It sounds like it was meant to be there. That never was there. Huh. But that's the energy that you get looking at them. Um, the beat itself. Uh, Michael was in the booth going, whatever he was but he had this little bounce in his stuff that I'm listening in my headphone so I, I, I did that little skip beat throughout the record and it, it was inspired through what we were playing that was written on some of the stuff when we had a chart but that particular song it came together with us grooving that lick if you know that lick stays throughout the song that little skip that's why people like it it's a big part of that song. It's part of the hook. And, yeah. But, yeah, I was led from, from Michael. Wow. That's that's yeah. the, the, the chemistry and, and, and organic process. Can't beat it. You can't replace that. You can't beat it. So, like I said, when you can and when I could, when I started getting into being a producer, all my stuff was like, and then when I started doing a lot of stuff with Quincy Jones, I had a combination of both because he would call me in to play drums and things but he also to keep up with technology and when Jimmy Jam and Terry came out with all that Janet stuff the ambience and the sound of that drum machine that you can get clearly the sound and stuff and that smack it was hard to compete with that because some of the engineers 
not Bruce, but some of them, they hadn't brought it up where they can compete with it. So when I would work with Quincy, I would do both. I would hire a, a, a kid that I would work with, and he would program uh, uh, for me the stuff that I want. Because when I'm playing it, it's coming from a, what I would do on the drums. I'm just using the technology so I can get that good sound. So a lot of people uh, were against it. I won't call them names, but it's like the times. You don't fight new stuff, and you don't have to get rid of the old stuff. How about just incorporate it? Even my record was an 808. If you listen to it now, I'm telling you, this is at the beginning of um, There's No Stopping Us, how it starts off. Man, that was a, 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 a 808 and another cheaper older drum machine that was called the, uh, the uh, Rhythm Ace. I don't know if you remember that. It was, it was a black box that had square buttons on it, and it was called Rhythm Ace. Try to look up that, you guys out there listening. Look for the Rhythm Ace. I connected because I had a, uh, a technician uh, give me a jack uh, output on it so I can connect it to the drum machine, and, and I made, I created that sound through that um, two mechanisms of themselves. So I was always like that. It's like making sauce. You know, I didn't use just ketchup. I might use some ketchup and some spice. So my drumming uh, and what I would do for producers without asking, I would bring that to the party. That's what made me start producing cuss. It was like after I would get through doing records, they were always saying, can you stay around? And I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little session when in. I need to start producing some records myself. So that's how I started, because being a producer is being creative along with the artists that you develop it. So that's how that started, me even getting producing. I just I've always been creative with the drums, and I've always tried to give them more than they would even ask me for. On down to my relationship with Rick James that you mentioned. Rick James wasn't even signed to Motown when I did it. I was doing the drums for the Temptations. Uh, 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 oh, you, you were on a song for a song for you. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, is, that album. That's one of my yeah. favorites of theirs. I mean, see, that's a funky. But see, I don't, I don't even get it out, and you pick it out. You know how many albums on the Temptations you could have brought up, and you knew exactly which one I'm talking about. That was the album we were preparing songs for that didn't make it. Just the track. Uh, it was a bass player out of Detroit that played with the Funkadelics. Billy Bass? Yes. Okay, it was just me and him, man. Shaky ground? That's it. You and I. That's it. Just me slamming on that hi-hat, four on the floor, and playing. Rick heard it put the uh, arrangement together, you know, through editing, wrote the lyrics and the melody, and there you go with that song. Even though I didn't get no rights on because that song is nothing but that groove with me and Billy. We were just playing it and letting the tape run. For you and I. Yeah. Yeah. On the, on the recording, though, are you guys actually on the recording? Say that one more time. Are you guys actually on the recording? Yes. That's, that is me. Like I said, we were dropping tracks 
and you know, back in the day, again, we we didn't have no fun. There was no chart. There was no arranger. It was Jeffrey Bowen, who I love so much. He he wouldn't record when I started touring with Stephen going out, and he wanted to go in the studio. He would literally use the drum machine and wait till I got back in town. That's how much he liked to use me in the studio. But getting back to what happened on us, it was on the weekend. I remember it was on the weekend. Jeffrey said, "Hey, I want to go in the studio and just get some funk going." So he had uh, Billy come in, and it was just me and him, no one else, but the producer and that machine running, capturing what we did, and using the art of editing at that time. Can you imagine how you could edit stuff now? Oh, yeah. If they were recording live, ooh, it would be crazy because you can do so much with today's technology. Were you guys? I don't remember. Were you guys officially credited on that? Yeah. Okay. I, I, you know what, man? I put it like this. I think I wouldn't. I'm sitting right here as much as I didn't look and and would pay attention to that because that's how I got my work. But right now, if you wanted to make a bet, I wouldn't bet on that. But I think it is. I think. Because I'm pretty sure Billy Bass played on a lot of stuff that he's not credited on. Oh, yeah. Me, too. Me, too. I, I'll be on here all day. We don't even have enough time to do that. Mm. And I won't call a name, but a certain artists would do it because they were afraid that people use their musicians to try to capture their sound. And that's why they didn't get credit. So I charge more for that because that's how I get my work. You know, you hear me, you go, oh, man, I want that guy that played on Heartbreak Hotel. I like that group, you know. Just like I used to like uh, uh, Jeff Carl, who played in Toto. I like that groove that he did on uh, Rosanna. You know, no one can play that like Jeff. So, like, if I was producing a record, I always went to the source. If I wanted that groove, even though I can play it, I would call up Jeff, because I, I, I'm friends with a lot of great drummers out there, because... I figure if you wanted Ollie Brown, you're going to have to call him to play the drum. You know, there's no substitute. So when people would call me, I would refer. I say, hey, man, uh, I got a session that week. Why don't you call Scott? He can he can, he, he can play. See if he's available. He might not be on to it, whatever. But that's how I was, and I, I'm not kidding you. I speak, like the guy I told you was yesterday, Butch, he played with the dramatics. Uh, uh, I just, uh, Jonathan Moffat. Okay, I recommended him to all kinds of stuff, and he'll tell you. Um, he did a lot of stuff with Michael, and uh, it goes on and on. I was good friends with Harvey Mason, who uh, Herbie Hancock used to use all his stuff. Uh, again, Jeff was my friend, so unlike other people trying to compete and being selfish, so everybody's good. You know, like LeBron James, you know, you see him walk up and give each other props. When you're good and you have confidence in what you're doing, it's, you know, we, me, I've always shared. You know, tell plus if stuff. there's enough, there's enough work for you know everybody, then what's the issue? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's not, it's not an issue. Like I said, I was very confident, and actually, I went up on my price to try to cut it down. I was so blessed with working so much. I had three drum sets, man, that I, I floated around Los Angeles. I would have a drum set, depending, even when I would book myself, depending on what I was doing, I would arrange 
certain drums to be available. If it was really funk stuff, like the one that you hear on most of the R&B, straight up funk stuff, that was that blue drum set that I had uh, from Heyman when I got with Stevie, and it was uh, called Heyman Drums. My first endorsement was with Slingling Drums. If you pull it up, you'll see that drum set. I was the first black African-American to be endorsed with Slingling Drums. A lot of people don't even know that. But if you put that in there, if you put Slingling Drums on my name, it'll come right, it'll go right there. Even got the picture. That's how I got the picture, because I couldn't find, uh, they used to have what they call uh, drum catalogs. I was in the catalog, they had my name by a certain drum, had some Ollie Brown drumsticks, you know. So all of my guys that I kind of was listening to before Billy Cobham, they were uh, Buddy Rich or Gene Cooper. So right. that's, you know, like they say, that's the, that's the only face that was put out there for me to gravitate to. That's why I've always tried to make myself so people of color can look at me and see that, you know, African men are, are doing a lot of great drumming, you know. Yeah. We got, you, uh, well, we got The Roots. Um, uh, what's the name? Oh, man. Uh, the Drumming The Roots. Uh, Questlove. Questlove. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until he started getting proper play um, on television that we would see that. It was always Fred, Shaughnessy, um, Johnny Carson and stuff. So that kind of thing helped. And, and look at his career and stuff. So yeah. So, I, I'm, I'm happy. Well, and you talk about, you know, uh, defying stereotypes. Well, how did you connect with the Rolling Stones? Okay. Uh, Billy Preston. I did uh, Nothing for Nothing, Needs Nothing. That's me on the drums on that. So my connection was with Billy Preston. Billy Preston was the keyboard player for the Rolling Stones when they uh, lost, uh, I think it was Nicky Hopkins or something had died or something. Anyway, I don't know the story, but he was the keyboardist for the Rolling Stones and toured with them. One, I'm just going to try to make it short. He uh, uh, was asked who was playing um, percussion and drums, or mainly percussion, on his records. Because when I started working in California and I came out here for the studio situation, I wanted to make sure that I was picking up that money that I would pack up my drums after a studio session and see a guy come in behind me and I go, again, I can do this. Who can lock into their own stuff better than me? Because I know I'm about to take, uh, go to a drum field. I know what's going to come after that drum field. Okay, so I had, I, I'm not kidding you. I wish I had a, because I usually have, oh, it's downstairs, my wife, she uh, teaches tap, so she has a studio, uh, a dance studio down there, and some of my drum case, but it's a it's a square, but think of a suitcase. I bought a tambourine, I bought some, some bongos, I didn't even have congos yet, uh, shakers, miscellaneous percussion mainly, because that's a lot what they wanted, because it was a popular guy by the name of Eddie Bongo, used to play the bongos, then you had a guy named Jack Ashford out of Detroit who played the tambourine like you can't believe. 
He played the tambourine like we play a guitar or a piano or a saxophone. Just the tambourine. So when you hear that Motown stuff, trust me, it's not me, it's not no one else, but Jack Asher. You Google him, man. Uh, even if you wanted to talk to him, I'll get you in touch with him because that boy played on all those hits. And when you kind of just listen to the tambourine, you go, whoa, all that skipping and stuff. I never could capture that. <laughs> the closest people I ever see uh, play the tambourine like that is some of those sisters in a Baptist church the gospel, that stand right? in that corner. That's <laughs> the closest yeah. I've ever seen somebody play the tambourine like him. <laughs> Yeah, so, that that was the studio fun I had. So, so I, you, I but you, you went out on the road with the Stones too, right? Oh, yeah. So what happened was um, uh, uh, Billy told them about me. They knew me as a drummer because in 72, I was with Stevie Wonder. I got with Stevie Wonder. I got the call to audition. Stevie was the opening act. Um and he lost his drummer during the tour. Back up a little bit, Ray Parker Jr., who was like my brother, you know, other than blood, you know, he lived upstairs. I mean, I lived upstairs, you know, in Duplex in Detroit. Uh, Ray uh, was downstairs. We've been together and best friends, I don't know, uh, ever since I can remember, you know. Uh, we went to we went to Angel Elementary School. We had the same music teacher. We had our own band, you know, just to try to go through with my stuff. We did park and recreations as a team. So what happened was Stevie uh, discovered Ray at the 20 grand. It was called the Motown Review. Well, no, the Motown Review was done at the Fox Theater in Detroit. Every Christmas, around Christmas time, it was the Motown Review where they would bring in all the acts and Steve Wonder, you name it. Then Ray came in, um, the 20 Grand was a nightclub where when they came in town, a lot of the big acts would play there from Gladys Knight. Bohannon, remember George Bohannon? Yeah, we just lost him band. this year. Yeah. yeah. He was the band leader who had the sense enough to hire all these great musicians, but they didn't like to use him sometime, and he didn't like to play for them because he just wanted to get the gig money and be the orchestra director. So he was friends with um, Ray, who ended up telling him about me, and I got to be friends with Bohannon. So when people would come in town, they would hire his band. Bohannon would let me play the drums because he didn't like to do it anyway. So I would play the drums. Stevie had heard about me. He was looking at Ray. Ray went on tour. I'm going faster. Ray went on tour with him. Then they lost the drummer when they were on tour, opening up for the Rolling Stones. The Stevie and Ray called me to come and audition. They had another guy, which I won't say name, come and audition from New York. And on the West Coast, we had heard about the New York guys versus the West Coast musicians. So we all in the hotel. One of the uh, guys that worked, actually Stevie's brother, Milton. Milton came up to my room. He said, Stevie want to know, do you want to come down now and audition? And I have both of you. I can take both of you guys now, or I can just come back and you can come by yourself. And I said, hey, 
it is what it is. Let's go. So we went in there. I told the story sometime. I went in there, sat down on the on the drums. Stevie let me play. And during that time, he was working on the talking book album and Superstition. So he had me play. Then he asked the other drummer to play. I got up. He asked the other drummer to sit down. He played. And then Stevie got up and said, I want to take a break. He took the break. And then he took the other drummer outside. And I'm sitting there going, oh, there you go. I don't have this gig. Only to know that when he went outside, he must have told him he was going to pick me because when he came back after the break, he asked me to sit down and play and never asked me to get up no more that night. I had to do a show, man, uh, the next day at Madison Square Gardens for the first time in my life, playing with my hero. And, and you understand music. I was playing also a medley. And you know how important that part is for me. I have all the knees in. I got to set the beat. So only that night, not only I had to learn all the songs, but I had to learn, uh, you know, where the tempo, where Stevie wanted it, because it's always different. And I have all the licks to take us into the next song. That's what I did the first time I got with Stevie. Um, don't ask me how I did it, nothing but prayer, man, because that's what happened. Wow. You know, because, you know, he's the opening act. So we on there and we hitting it, getting off. You know, it's not a lot of times, hey, man, what's the tempo of that song? Oh, okay. No, I'm the tempo. I'm the Vic. So it, it, it was challenging. But my first show was the day after auditioning. Man. No rehearsals for me. None. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and right today, I speak to Stevie all the time. <laughs> and he's good people, you know what I mean? Uh, what you guys see on TV and when you hear him talking, that's my brother. He, we, we, he, he's, I speak to Steve, he's called me when he's out of the country to just to say happy birthday. Threw me off, uh, that was Bob. I, I, I speak to him at all my birthday, but um, I start, uh, coaching basketball high school. I remember I was in the, at the gym and Stevie, because his number, his name would come up because I got his number, he, his name come up in my phone. And I said, hi, he said, eh, and he started singing to me and everything. And and uh, I said, so so what's going on? He said, uh, I'm in Germany somewhere. And I was like, oh man, that's so thankful for you to think of me on my birthday and you out of the country. And But it's always been like that. Even when I left, cause he, I never forget running into him on a show where he was performing, and I wasn't. And I came backstage, and he pulled me to the side and said, "You know, Ollie, I really appreciate the way you left me. You know, and I'm glad we can still be friends." And I said, "Hey, man, I appreciate you giving me my break in music, period, and everything I learned from you. And we've always kept it real, and you know." We we're tight like that right to the day like I'm sharing with you, you know. That's, we, that, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's 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 always being real, man. Not the fake stuff. Let me see if I can use you. Just always sharing. I I went around with him all the time. Uh, what they would call uh, what we would have an advance man. So when we go to the next city, our Stevie would always take me. So I got to fly a lot, you know, because he would have to go there for interviews. 
before the concerts. Because that was back when the record companies wanted to make sure you hit them, you know, those big radio stations, you know, whatever it is, WBLS in New York, you know, when Frankie Crocker was there. I don't know if you remember them days. Frankie Crocker, of course. He the one got me the deal at Polygram when I did the uh, solo album after the breaking movie. You know. Well, let's let's t let's talk about um, this. Is all great stuff, but I want to uh, hit some key yeah, points. You, um, you you're gonna need a part two with me because I've been so blessed. I, I just wanted to mention though, uh, personally, I mean Stevie Wonder. Uh, the first 45s I ever bought as a kid were you know like his music. So I mean he is so special to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I learned so much. You've mentioned so many amazing people, but I wanted to ask you, like, what are some things, let's just say, that maybe you learned from Quincy Jones? You know, how did he, like, conduct business in the studio? Again, as, I, as I'm speaking, that's why it's so hard to stay in one place because they all connected. Now, the Quincy Jones thing came from him going to a Rolling Stone concert. Billy Preston was on the show. Like I said, that's how I got connected with the Stones. On the Rolling Stones tour in 72, Stevie, uh, not Stevie, um, Billy did two songs. We did Nothing for Nothing and We'll Go Around in Circles. Mick Jagger would take a break and we had a two hour show. We would take a break, they would let Stevie, I mean, um, Billy Preston be featured. And Mick would come out on, um, we would go around in a circle, uh, like tagging the end, getting back into the Rolling Stone. Quincy told me when I finally, I even got a picture when we were talking because uh, a guy by the name of Ed Eckstein uh, was working with him. Uh, and he was, we were in the hall and we were just sitting. And I think I asked that question. And he said, man, i never forget when you sat on those drums and how the sound changed in the arena. This is arena, because they had great equipment. He said, when you start playing those drums on uh, um, your foot, he said, who is that guy? And that's what happened. He discovered me at that, and then went on from there. And another person I still talk to, still send me Christmas cards, you know? that I learned so much. He let me come in the studio and be a fly on the wall to see what you don't do. He used to always tell me, hey, Ollie, you don't want to have it too busy because if it's dancing, he used to say, if it's dancing too much, people don't know where to grab. He said, you got too much, he'll say, I mean, this positive stuff, not, no, you don't do, no. He would tell me what was wrong and how to fix it. That's when you're helping someone. And then he might ask a question, now what do you think? You know, and uh, this is doing the stuff and he didn't mind me asking uh, uh, stuff. So I had a chance to be there when he was through with me. I asked him, you know, can I stand around? Because our sessions with the level of people he was producing are, you know, Michael, you know, you name it. George, ba George Benson. Brothers you know, Johnson before that, yeah. Yeah, Rufus. and that's how I got connected. And uh, the story, now that you're saying it, when we were sitting in the hall doing a sound check, I went to, my fact, 
that's how I went to Japan. I, when I went to Japan, I went with uh, Quincy as his percussionist because he used a guy named uh, John Robinson a lot on drums and then Dougal on drums too. He mixed it. He would mix it up on his album from Flavor. Uh, that's where I got that from. Like I said, I learned from the best. You know, whoever is doing the best, that's who you want. You don't want the substitute person if you're looking for a certain groove. Like I would say, hey, yeah, can I play it? Yeah, I can play it. But is this guy the one that created that groove that you want? And I'm producing record? I want to get him. Just like um, no one plays a harmonica like Stevie. Mm-mm. He did Latoya for me. My first project uh, as a producer was Latoya Jackson's album. Uh, if you feel the funk, I yeah. produced the whole album, but that was my first single that I produced on Latoya Jackson. And there's another song on there. I call up Stevie, like I always do if I need something. I say, uh, Stevie, I need you to blow a harmonica uh, for me solo. Oh yeah, no problem. Do I knew about Toops Tillman, which is different than chromatic harmonica? No. I wanted Stevie Wonder to play it. And if I don't get Stevie, then I won't put a harmonica solo. So I called him up. He's always come down. Oh, Stevie, how much I owe you? Oh, man, get out of here. You know, it's like that. Which is a blessing. You know, I'm just trying to let you, I'm trying to put out there in this interview that share, be humble, appreciate people that enjoy your music and what you can do. But always try to be on the giving side, and things just come. Everything I've been telling you, they kind of came to me a little bit. And, and and it has that authenticity, too, when you let the actual artists put their stamp on. There you it. go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and it helps the success for you as a producer, as a record producer. You know, the only reason why it changed, because unfortunately. Technology took away from people, I like to say, uh, it allowed them to kind of cheat and it got money gear where it's cheaper to do this and won't nobody notice it and that's not true. You know, just because you feed garbage and get away with it, sometimes people take that as, oh, we can get away with it, so let's just do it this way, opposed to trying to be excellent. You know, I got the Ray Parker history, and my understanding was Ray was only like maybe 15 or something when he was playing on Stevie's record. I mean, he was yeah. something else, but yeah. or he was playing professionally oh. at 15. Anyway, is mm-hmm. what I've heard. Yeah, but uh, we 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 started early. I I would put it this: when I got with Stevie, I was 19. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to stop going. I was going to Wayne State University. You remember Wayne State? I was just taking up, unlike they have today with these kids. Don't know, like I told my son, they got classes where you can take up what they call now is a master class on drums or, or trying to be an engineer or uh, mm. a record producer. There, you know, you can take didn't it. Have I was just taking, yeah, when I was going to school, you just took up uh, music education. That was like if you're going to be a teacher. That was it. Yeah. It wasn't a special class like we had in school even where we had, I was a part of the, not just the marching band, you know, I needed to do more than that. I needed to be behind a drum set. I got into my teacher, Mr. Hicks, who passed, a lot of my teachers are not here, but uh, Mr. Hicks was uh, my 
a music teacher who, and uh, Mr. Smith, Mr. Hicks, and I want to give them all props. And I never forget uh, George Hamilton drum shop in Detroit who gave me my first drum set and allowed me, the reason why I say gave me cost, my mom didn't have the money to pay for a full drum set. And it was really holding me up because I needed more drums and I needed that stuff. I literally had people stand around me on their drum so I can have other things to play. When I was in the basement, the only drum I had that I could afford was the snare drum. And I had, I'm not kidding you, I had a cymbal that was cracked because I had to buy what I could. Had a string on it, so it's not hanging because I couldn't, I didn't have the money to get a stand. So I was, I was limited again by opportunity. That's why I try to do what I can, benefits and stuff, because these kids, they need the stuff. And I was really interested in hearing LeBron James uh, mention how he has a program where he can give money to these kids. I think that was Shaq, either one. Those guys that's doing something, trying to uh, put the kids, give them an opportunity to have the proper tools they need. You know, they need the laptop. They need oh, this stuff. That's and, such a wonderful that, thing to do that. Yeah, he let me take that drum set on a signature. If that, hmm. I he let my mom pay whatever she could get somebody a full drum set to a little black guy in Detroit music because his store was downtown. And um, I never, I've always let him know. I tried to do a clinic when I went back to Detroit. I would go back when I was flamer. I would do uh, a clinic. When I started managing, I had some of my groups go to the music stores and do clinic because I, when I went into management, I was managing uh, Paul Jackson Jr. guitar. Yeah, he's um, been on the show. Yeah, yeah. I had him. Um, I I came up with this idea. They never did it again because a lot of people not there when they did it. When the guitar center started expanding, I'm sure you heard of the guitar center. Oh yeah, I used to love going. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what I came up with uh, when. I was managing Paul, this album came out and I took, I, I put together like a promotional tour of his album with Paul Jackson Jr. Um, doing uh, like a seminar and you know, I pitched the album and sold the album there. I asked the guitar center, could I do a tour? We put the money together on all endorsements that Paul had. This was my idea. So he had Gibson, you know, uh, who else? Well, Gibson was the main uh, uh, sponsor. But my point is, I took several of his endorsements, allowed them to have a banner. Paul would do his sponsorship. I had my album, made the record company give me some albums to sell. We went to whenever they opened up a store in Chicago, they opened up a store in New York, San Francisco, they would send us out, had them pay for all the expenses and stuff, and my artist made some money on it, 
and it was very successful because they went back to play. Everyone wins. Everyone's winning on that one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And saving money because you know how advertising costs for one sponsor to do one thing. So if everyone's share, I call you up, I say, hey, your share is $1,000 maybe because I had put together a budget that would cover the expensive, the plane tickets, and pretty much that was it. Because the Guitar Center, they sponsor everything else because we're putting people in their place, so it was like a no-brainer. Everyone sent me my I couldn't even go to the mailbox before hanging up because that was such a cheap promotion because normally it would be in your hands, right? Because it's your thing, you're sponsoring, so you paying for the hotel, you paying for the plane ticket, and you working out whatever you work out with Guitar Center. This way, I was not in no one's pocket. So that got to be some of the business things I was able to do and give back as a manager when I started managing. And like I said before, managing, um, Terry Dan Management was my company I, I used because uh, I didn't want no haters out there. So I changed the name, used my wife and Terry Dan Management. And then it was uh, Brown Sugar Productions. It was my production company. And then my music is Ollie Brown Sugar Music which is my email address, oliebrownsugarmusic at gmail.com. That's where, like I told you, that's where all my music stuff. Then I came out here and started producing records and doing sessions. It just started snowballing, like I said. That's, that's great stuff, Ollie. Thank you for sharing that.